90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? And doing pretty good, John. How about yourself? Oh, a little hoarse, but uh, I'm going to make it. <laughs> Nay. Um, well, the highlight of my week so far is, um, you know, we have our weekly colloquium here in our school, and we had Dr. Brad Jolliffe on, and he was from WashU in St. Louis, but he talked all about the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter and the recent volcanism on the moon, and it was a super great talk. Um, we've had some duds at Colloquium, as I'm sure you remember. <laughs> <laughs> so this one was really neat. Um, it's kind of got me more jazzed for igneous rocks than I have been in a long time. Well, I mean, and when you say recent volcanism on the moon, it's like re- re- the recent volcanism that I talked about a few weeks ago, right? Yes. <laughs> Geologically recent volcanism. <laughs> so 100 million years or less. It's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I was actually in Philly this last weekend for the Open Hardware Summit, and that was an absolute blast. I know that uh, <laughs> and if anybody followed me on Twitter, they probably muted me on Twitter <laughs> for that day. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm going to say you're one of my few friends that would say an open hardware summit was an absolute blast. But But that's okay. It was really cool. That's what I had planned to talk about this week. Uh, But I wanted to instead talk about the recent Chile earthquake. Uh, You know, it happened as we were recording last week's show. Right. Actually, uh, I was watching uh, the data roll in while we were recording So today we have a guest with us to talk about the recent magnitude 8.3 Chile earthquake, Professor Charles Amon from Penn State University. How are you? Fine, thanks. So this earthquake, uh, now probably about a week old by the time this is airing, Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the tectonic setting that this occurred in? Yeah, so the earthquake occurred as a result of the uh, convergence of the Pacific Ocean floor, in this case the Nazca Plate, which is being subducted or moving beneath the west coast of South America. Here we're talking about central Chile, but the same type of process occurs along much of the western coast of South America. And so here the plates, it's like you said, it's a subduction zone, so the plates are locked together, uh, one trying to push under the other, storing energy, until eventually a large part of that Uh, fails and produces the earthquake, right? That's correct. For most of the time, the contact between the plates, at least part of it, the part where earthquakes occur, is locked. But as the plates keep moving, they seem to continuously move, as near as we can tell, certainly on the decade scale, and certainly long term, they continue to move relative to one another. The rocks adjacent to the locked portion of the plate boundary deform, and that deformation results in the storage of strain energy or energy and that could take anywhere from decades to hundreds of years in some large uh, subduction zone regions as that energy accumulates slowly uh, you essentially load the system and during an earthquake which is a very sudden motion that energy comes cascading out producing you know the earthquake right so here we had a magnitude 8.3, but we didn't see nearly as much destruction and loss of life as we did with the smaller Nepal earthquake, which was a 
back in April, but this earthquake was also uh, about twice the depth, a little bit more. Yeah, this earthquake was uh, deeper, especially along the coast. It started near the coast at a depth of, oh, I don't know, say 15 to 20 miles, and then the earthquake or the sliding propagated upward towards the west away from the coast. So that helped a little bit. The other thing that, that helped in some sense is that the Chileans are very good with large earthquakes. It's a country that has a long history and long and frequent history for hosting large earthquakes such as this. And they do a very good job of getting the word out on what people should do before, during, and after the earthquake. And so it, it is a, a tremendous success from the, the hazards point of view in that only, well, anytime anyone is killed in an earthquake is a significant and sad event. But in this case, it was, I think the last death toll that I've heard was 13. Yeah, so this was a really small in terms of, just like we said, in terms of death toll compared to Nepal, which had worse infrastructure. Um, on the show, we've talked a lot about the Cascadian subduction zone. Could you tell us, I mean, the subduction zone along Chile, for those who don't know, sort of how is it analogous to what we have in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, it, it is, it's very similar in terms of the overall plate interactions. It's comparable. The convergence up along Cascadia, I think, might be a little bit less. So the strain or the energy builds more slowly. Uh, the unusual thing about Cascadia is that uh, we're pretty confident, we're almost sure that it had a large magnitude 9 earthquake in January of 1700. Uh, but it hasn't had much since. And if you go looking for it by looking at where earthquakes occur, you might even miss that plate boundary. Now, there are some processes that are occurring deeper that give us great confidence that we have some idea of what's going on there. And the existence of the Cascade volcanoes is another indication that there's the same type of plane interaction going on. Yeah, so you mentioned historical earthquakes and that uh, this location in Chile, it had a lot of historical seismicity. So I pulled up the IRIS. Uh, they had a Teachable Moments presentation that went out on this. And in that, there's a map uh, of seismicity in this area. And this really is right in the same area as a magnitude 8.2 uh, from 1943, and just north of uh, several other magnitude 8-plus events from the 80s and early 1900s. Right. I mean, this area has had also quite a few uh, major or magnitude 7 and larger earthquakes in the last uh, several decades, or few decades, let's say. It, it's not clear, it's always hard to tell exactly what happened in 1943. The observations that we have from that period are much more sparse. I think in one paper I saw they had four seismograms from that earthquake. I downloaded almost a thousand from this earthquake. So there's a, a huge difference in the number of data we get. Uh, but it, it certainly overlaps with the 1943 earthquake. It may be very similar to it and it may actually overlap a little bit with some events from 1971 and perhaps even 1985. So, you know, but this area has a rich earthquake history, that's for sure. So th there's several models that are emerging now of what happened, uh, how much of the fault ruptured, and how far it moved that are coming out now, right, from the USGS and other places. Right, and um, mostly what I'll talk about are the, the models from the USGS. Uh, those are published, they're out, available on, on the web. So essentially what seemed to have occurred was 
Um, down near the coast, where the, the earthquake initiated, which we call the hypocenter, uh, sliding began and propagated westward out towards the Peru-Chile Trench. The speed at which sliding occurs, the sliding between the two rocks, we think that's roughly on the order of a meter per second. So that's how fast the plates move relative to one another. But the rupture front, the area that's sliding grows very rapidly. And the sort of front of that sliding propagates outward on the order of two kilometers per second, which is equivalent to roughly four and a half, well, 4,500 4, miles per hour. So that goes very fast. This rupture propagated, let's say about 60 kilometers up dip to the west towards the trench, so up the plate boundary dip in this case, and spread out to roughly 200 kilometers wide. The, the maximum slip was a little bit to the northwest of where the earthquake nucleated, and the average slip may have been three or four meters, but the peak slip out near the trench was on the order of eight meters. Wow, yeah, so we're looking at uh, 20 plus feet of motion for those of us that think in imperial units. Yeah, I mean, 8.3s are big, and the, the slip, certainly the peak slips get pretty large. And so the total time that this thing was actually rupturing is something on the order of 90 seconds or so? Anywhere from 90 to 120 is what it looks like from the seismic observations. And certainly the, the scenario that I described plays out in roughly that, that time. So that sounds pretty long to me. I mean, I don't know a lot about earthquake dynamics, but is that particularly a long time? For an 8.3, no, it, it is a long time if you're in exactly. the shaking, I'm sure. Um, but this is, it's, it's not that unusual for, for this size earthquake. But yes, the you know, smaller magnitude earthquakes, um, they occur in fractions of a second to a few seconds. A magnitude six is a few seconds. Uh, seven is maybe a couple of tens of seconds. And then uh, it continues to grow with the size of the, the earthquake. That makes sense. Well, and since magnitude is a, a logarithmic scale, you know, we always say that something like a magnitude six or around that area is an equivalent rupture patch or how much of the fault actually broke to something that's like the downtown area of State College, uh, where we are right now. But this has a much larger area, right? We're talking uh, tens of thousands of square kilometers. Right. If it's 200 by 60, I think that's roughly 12,000 kilometers squared. And... Um, the aftershock zone is a little bit bigger than that, but we're looking at something on the size of Connecticut, or perhaps the aftershock zone, maybe Massachusetts, a little bigger. Yeah, so that's that's absolutely massive, and there have been a significant number of aftershocks, but it's behaving uh, the expected aftershock decay laws very well. That's correct. The you know the sort of law of the number of aftershocks with time after a main shock, and, and it's you know law in quotes because earthquakes are, are tricky sequences and they right. always like to fool you. But the typical thing we see is a rapid decrease in the number of aftershocks. This seems to be uh, following that lead. That's not to say that the, the largest aftershocks occur soon. It's just the numbers. And so some of the, there have been quite a few large aftershocks in this case. And interestingly, most of the aftershocks so far have occurred uh, deeper than where the most of the slip in the earthquake occurred. So the peak slip, the maximum slip is out near the trench. The aftershocks have been concentrating 
down near where the initiation of the earthquake occurred, so a little bit closer to the coast in that regard. So that that's always a concern, right, is that you get this huge 8.3, but is that a foreshock or is that the main shock, right? And so if we look at these aftershocks, we can sort of tell that that's probably it for this one, right? Well, it is always the concern. You're, you're absolutely right there. Um, what exactly happens in the interaction of large earthquakes or earthquakes? It's, it's hard to forecast, but right. so far this one's following the standard sort of rules of thumb that we have. But there have been times, uh, recent times, where you get two magnitude eights occurring um, a few months apart, or in the case of Sumatra, uh, there was the 9.2 followed by an 8.5. So, right. you know, typically the aftershock sequence decays and then, you know, things settle down, but that's not always the case. Well, and typically worldwide, you know, we see this roughly order of magnitude difference in the number of earthquakes versus magnitude. Uh, so there are 10 times more sevens and eights in a very general sense, right? So how many of these do we expect typically annually that are of magnitude eight plus? That's an interesting point. Uh, if you look long-term from say 1900 till the present, the average year has one to two of these size earthquakes. It had been about 500 days, so over a year since the last magnitude eight, which occurred in Northern Chile, um, just over, well, a year and a half ago, roughly. So. This is the typical pattern. The decade from, say, 2004 to 2014 had a higher rate, and we had more large earthquakes or great earthquakes. Anything with a magnitude greater than eight, we call a great earthquake. We had more of those in that decade than we've seen in any other 10-year time span since we've been measuring accurate magnitudes. So things seem to have settled down. This one went back to the, okay, it's been over a year, but you know, typically we do see something greater than eight once or twice a year. Well, and with this one, so we said this was more of a, well, this was a pure pretty much thrust earthquake because in a subduction zone. So in a strike slip setting, we always worry about loading other faults uh, and triggering more earthquakes that could be even a decent distance away. Uh, is there any worry here that adjacent parts of the subduction zone have been uh, loaded excessively? Well, the key word there is excessively. They certainly have been loaded. That's, it's the same type of calculation you would use on the San Andreas Fault. And what it shows in cases like this is that it is the adjacent regions, the regions adjacent to the part of the plate boundary that slid during this earthquake that are loaded in the sense that uh, some of the release of strain in this region, so the release of energy in this region, actually loads or adds some strain to the adjacent regions, sort of along the strike of the trench in this case. The other thing that this did being a, uh, a thrust earthquake was the, the upper plate moved outward uh, enough to generate a decent ocean wave, right? So we're looking at a tsunami that was uh, four and a half meters reported. Yeah, the, the size of the tsunami, you know, varied from place to place, but there was a place where it was, you know, 15 feet or more. That was up near Coquimbo, I believe. And yes, it, it came from the, the rebound of the South American plate as it slid over the Nazca plate suddenly. It displaces water, partly from 
the horizontal motion partly from the uplift that occurs on the ocean floor as a result of the sliding. And that triggered the tsunami, which was observed probably across the entire Pacific Basin, but damaging, at least as far as I know, primarily along the coast of Chile. And it ranged up to four and a half meters or roughly 15 or 16 feet. Because I think they were expecting less than a foot in California, I think was what I saw for the forecasted. Right. It was really interesting to be watching Twitter the day after this earthquake. Some people were posting the um, tide gauge results or the deep water uh, monitors showing pressure. But you could see the, the coastal sort of water height. And they would update it every hour or so. And you could see the tsunami because it travels roughly at the speed of an uh, airliner. So there's many hours before it gets to Los Angeles, to Hawaii, uh, various places. So you could watch it and you could see it come in. And it, you're right, it didn't get, it certainly wasn't a threat right. up in the, the California area. Yeah, looking at the forecast, it's about 15 hours to Hawaii. <laughs> so that's uh, quite a bit of time to get prepared if there was any threat. Yeah, yeah. That, the, the largest earthquake that we know of occurred quite a bit south of here, but still along the Chilean coast. And that was in 1960. It was a 9.5 estimated magnitude. And that produced a Pacific-wide basin that caused fatalities over in Japan, where you would have more than a day to warn. But at the time in 1960s, communications were much more challenging, and we didn't have the alert system. And it was that earthquake in particular um, that I think led to the formation of the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center. And now there's warning centers for other regions as well. We talk a lot about that um, in my class when we talk about the 1700 Cascadia earthquake because that's we have written evidence in Japan of what they call an orphan tsunami that occurred due to that 9.0. Um, and so it's, it's kind of neat to see, you know, in their written history over 300 years old, these tsunamis recording ruptures along the subduction zone in the Pacific Northwest. So, yeah, it's actually a, it's tremendous data, right? right? It it tells us the date exactly at which on which the earthquake occurred in in seventeen hundred. Um, the geologic evidence along the coast confirms mm -hmm. that there was a very large earthquake at the time, but you can't get the actual. I think it was a January twenty sixth or something. Yes, like that. exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned communication a lot in here, both uh, then and now. You said you followed uh, people on Twitter. I know I did too. What are some of the best ways to keep up with these events as they're happening? Because you can get notified from the USGS almost instantly. Yeah, I would always say the, the first place to start is earthquake.usgs.gov for a large earthquake. Um, they're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, monitoring the earth for these large events. They produce results very quickly or as quickly as possible, and they'll continue to update that day. So I always go there, in particular, their pager project, which produces a, a rapid estimation of what the human costs and the economic costs of a large earthquake may be in a particular region. And other than that, I think if you, you sort of watch Twitter or collect a, a make a list of earthquake information sources and some people who like to post things um, or maybe not like but certainly do post very <laughs> valuable results quickly um, after an earthquake you can you can keep up pretty well with that I find 
that's probably the fastest way to find out about what's going on. In fact, the USGS monitors Twitter. Um, and I think for this earthquake, they had a, a detection um, within a minute or two of the event, or it might have been even better, from Twitter. And they even could tell from how often the word Terremoto was used compared to Tembler, which Terremoto's strong shaking, Tembler's weak shaking. They knew it was going to be a big earthquake as well. And then it starts to show up on the seismometers and they're doing the quantitative modeling. But they actually watched Twitter pretty carefully to detect large earthquakes near large populations. Yeah, and I, like to, I think social media, there was a study with the uh, Virginia earthquake where the uh, Twitter information actually went faster than the P waves. <laughs> yeah, there were there were some. The, the bulk of them, the tweets, I think, followed the S waves when the strong shaking started. But you could see it, you're right, out in front. You could see some people tweeting their friends that were in front of it, basically. Uh, and they responded. But uh, if you collect them all together, it's exactly what you'd expect. It's expanding at like three or four kilometers per second as the S waves propagate into the northeast heavily populated corridor. There's so many instruments out there now and so much real-time data. How long does it take to get a, a good idea of what the magnitude was and what the, uh, the mechanism and how much slip there was on these faults? The, for just a, a rough estimate of what the geometry and the size of the event are, there's usually some early results in uh, 15, 20 minutes. Depends on where the earthquake is, because what's the real sort of you know delay? I don't know if that's quite what really dictates how well, how fast you can do this is are the waves traveling from the earthquake region to the seismometers, and uh, they go pretty fast, but they don't go as fast as the tweets. And so anywhere from 20 minutes is where the USGS, I think, hopes to have uh, some pretty solid information on the overall geometry, the overall size, some information maybe from Pager as well. The maps of what the slip may have been can take you know much longer because you have to um, cut out different pieces of the, the data set uh, set up some fairly complicated inversions. And then there's a lot of testing, especially before they publish something, to make sure that how robust is that solution. Because you can get a solution fast, but if you want to make sure that you've got the right solution or something close to it, it takes some time on that. But um, Things go pretty quickly, and they've been pushing the times earlier and earlier. Uh, they're approaching the point where maybe it, it will just be, how long does it take the waves to get to the instruments? Wow. And, from then on. So Shannon, I don't, have you looked at the pager reports any? We've referenced those a few times and I don't know how familiar um, people are no, going to be with so that. No, so I haven't, even though I get on earthquakes.usds.gov all the time because in living in Oklahoma now, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like, oh, it was one for sure. And these are obviously the tiny ones. Um, so I'm actually not very familiar with that. Yeah, it's usually on their summary pages. You can find, you'll see the pager alert and they're great summaries for, well, both science and non-science students mm -hmm. when there's a big earthquake because it, it gives estimates of what's the likelihood of damage and human costs as well. And also how many people are likely to have been shaken to a certain level. So I don't, I don't seem to have one 
I'm sure it's in one of these windows somewhere on my screen, but uh, it's generally for any large earthquake, it's linked to from the summary page for that earthquake. Okay, so maybe this is something that I've clicked on and I just didn't know it was, you know, it had a name because I've certainly read those summary pages and we've done that in class as well when these things happen, so. Well, and they rated, uh, they showed the number of population that's exposed to the different, the modified Mercalli shaking index, right? So for this event, uh, it was severe shaking, which is an eight on the scale. Uh, so that's significant damage to uh, buildings and infrastructure. Right. They'll give estimates, or you can quickly scan and get estimates of how many people felt a certain felt the earthquake, how many people felt strong shaking, how many people felt severe shaking. Uh, they're all estimates. They're done very quickly, uh, but they they tend to be pretty good in terms of when things play out and we we check later. They're fairly accurate. The other product that I've started seeing now in the last couple days uh, has been the INSAR, which this takes a little while to derive because it's uh, satellite-based. So it's multiple passes of a satellite with uh, a radar on it over the same area, and then they actually can determine how much the surface moved. So for this area, uh, I think they were looking at uh, ground movements of a little over a meter. Right, and there's a handful of GPS sites that I've seen data from that more or less show that with a different satellite-based geodetic technique. But the, the INSAR results are also fairly consistent with the USGS model for where the slip was. The fact that, you know, where along strike that peak slip was and the fact that it was a little bit or pretty far offshore, I guess, as well. But those are, are very important data for watching the deformation that went on in this case, because they're land-based, you can only get the INSAR results on the continent, and most of the earthquake was offshore. You only get half the picture, but it's still it's still good to have half that picture rather than none of it. And the same thing with the GPS sensors. Also, they can produce more or less continuous information on some of the slower deformations that occur following a large earthquake like this. Um, and so a lot of that helps us figure out the overall package of what, what's occurred and what's probably still, in some sense, some of that slow deformation may still be going on. Well, the seismometers are pretty bad at picking out permanent deformations. They're not designed to be able to do that, correct? That's correct. It's, it's you know, be skeptical when you see that. But there are times when certain strong motion instruments with a little bit of processing can pull off some of that permanent offset, but the, the GPS are spectacular at that. Yeah, and INSAR, we haven't talked about it a lot on the show, and we probably should do a show on it at some point, but it's actually an interferometric radar, and I've mentioned it a little bit on uh, the orbital mechanics, so we'll link that in if you want to go uh, check that out as well. So was there anything else interesting from this earthquake that uh, you thought we should know about? Uh, probably the most interesting part of it is the, the clear separation between the aftershocks and the large slip. We had seen and suspected that in some of the very big earthquakes that light up a, a very big part of the subduction zone plate boundary. And people had seen it over the last three or four or five very large earthquakes, the 8.5s, 8.8s, 9s. Uh, this is a very nice example showing that, that 
the the major slip, you know, the peak slip, the largest offset between the two plates seems to have occurred out in the shallow parts of the plate boundary, but most of the aftershocks and the nucleation of the main shock are closer to the coast and deeper. And so it's it's telling us something about, you know, how these plate boundaries work and how they may evolve or change as you go from the trench down into the deeper parts of the what we call the seismogenic zone, the area where you have large earthquakes. For for a long time, we've looked at differences along the strike, along the coast in this case, of how subduction zone plate boundaries might be segmented. Um, now we're starting to see maybe there's also some depth variations that are systematic that may give us some more clues on how these, these plate boundaries work. Yeah, and we don't have uh, a lot of information, direct observations, just a few boreholes uh, with some material coming up to know what material properties could be changing as you go down dip, right? Right, and it's very difficult to, to tease these things out of the seismograms that are recorded thousands of kilometers or miles away, which is often what we have. Not always, there'll be some close-in data here, but even that, it's, it's a challenge to unravel what you see on the surface and project it down to what might be going on tens of miles, tens of kilometers deeper. Yeah, the seismograms uh, just are incredibly complex when you look at them uh, from anything that was remotely near this. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to a surface motion video that's actually based on some work that you had done and to the iris ground motion visualization. Uh, people should go through that uh, frame by frame and take a look at it because it's really fascinating. So I imagine when you're looking at these, um, I'm looking at the pager report now, um, but when you're looking at these subduction zones, you know, the angle of subducting slab and how it changes with depth is going to sort of tell you a lot about what's going to happen on these. So that's kind of just what you said, what's remarkable about this earthquake. It just seems that I can envision, you know, the angle of the subducting slab and how the stresses are creating those, uh, like the aftershocks. And you said it's really deep, but then shallower aftershocks, right? So that's kind of, it's kind of a cool visualization looking at this map, thinking about the actual dynamics of the earthquake occurring. Right, and the geometry plays a huge role, and especially uh, even a little bit of curvature can affect the kind of deformation you might measure with INSAR or GPS on shore, or can affect the results that are based on seismograms as well. So it, it's a, an important player, and it, it is essentially uh, the key player in why the largest earthquakes occur along subduction plate boundaries. There's just bigger faults because they, they dip shallowly. This one is, you know, roughly 20 degrees dip out in the region where the earthquake was. It'll steepen up a little bit as you go uh, further east of the earthquake, but we don't know with high resolution exactly, you know, the shape of it. We have pretty good ideas, uh, first order, but lots of work left to do there. 20 degrees, that just makes me think that I need to sort of rethink my exaggerations when I draw plate tectonic boundaries <laughs> in class. So. Yeah, the, I mean, they're exaggerated in every yep. textbook as well. It, it's, I don't think students have a really good feel for how roughly horizontal these boundaries are. They're, they're much closer to horizontal than they are to 45 okay. degrees, which right. is the way we exaggerate them to make 
room to label right. things. Yeah, that's part of it. <laughs> yes, because I'm pretty sure I've drawn this one extremely steep before. So that's something to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah, anytime in field mapping, if you see something that's 20 degrees, it's just, ah, it's exactly. sub horizontal. <laughs> I'm not interested until you <laughs> go get up on. to 70. <laughs> so you, you also have made a, an app, right, that people can use on their iPads, iPhones, and then uh, a Mac Earth Motion Monitor as well. Yeah, I, I tend to watch the seismograms from around the planet. I mean, seismologists, the community has done a great job of making the data available uh, in real time or near real time from seismometers all around the planet. So I've, I've developed, initially I developed the, the Macintosh application just to display uh, seismograms a few minutes latency, so a few minutes after real time. We run that in the museum. I run that in my office um, just so that I could see what's going on. It, it's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, then I wanted to be able to do that in the classroom and the iPad came out. And so I sort of ported that in some ways to the iPad and that's uh, Ep Epicentral Plus. There's an Epicentral, which is the iPhone version that doesn't have the seismograms, just downloads information on earthquakes. Both of these are more or less the apps that I wanted. So they're the ones I use in class when I'm teaching or the ones I use when I just want to see what's going on or I hear there's an earthquake and I want to look at it. Um, but I, I hope other people find them somewhat useful. Well, yeah, and you post uh, channel lists where you can uh, look at stations nearby recent events on your blog as well to go with the app. Right, there, it's, it's really just the, the whole point of the blog is just to post those channel lists, which are lists of uh, seismogram components, the vertical from different stations that uh, you can paste into the app and then see what's, you know, download the seismograms from those places. Usually that's the, the most tedious part and certainly must be perplexing to somebody who's not a seismologist and you go to the websites created by seismologists and look at, well, where are the real-time seismic stations? Uh, so generally I'm doing that for large earthquakes or interesting earthquakes sometimes like Oklahoma and I'll, I'll put out, oh, I made this list. So I put it on to the epicentral.net channel list blog and people can copy and paste it from there. And, and in, in the iPad app where you would do that, um, there's a tab that takes you right to that website. So it's, it's fairly easy to access from inside the application. Well, great. So Shannon, did you have any, Last uh, questions? No, I'm just trolling epicentral.net now. And yeah, it's confusing for people who don't do this. <laughs> but I can't wait to download it and check it out. All right. Well, thanks yes, for joining thank us. We appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. It was fun. What I don't know about you, John, um, you know a lot about earthquakes already, but I certainly found that pretty enlightening. I think it's really interesting to look at the differences, you know, as that large Pacific uh, subduction zone changes up from South America you know, into North America. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. The large earthquakes are so much different than the smaller earthquakes in terms of what we can look at because some of the processes, you know, like uh, tsunamogenesis and all that, are just really fascinating. So it's always interesting to hear what the people that do seismology every day have to say when these events occur. But, you know, I know that sometimes you've been, you mentioned that you get woken up at night by these earthquakes in Oklahoma, right? 
Uh, yeah, and I'm sure most of them don't have anything to do with real earthquakes, but I'll wake up and I think it's shaking, and I, I really do. I keep my phone right there so I can get on to earthquakes.usgs.gov. But it probably has less to do with actual earthquakes and more to do with our second favorite beverage. <laughs> Yes, second. I thought you were going to say second favorite thing. I was going to say it has to be third. But second favorite <laughs> beverage works, and that's exactly. coffee. Exactly. And that takes us into everybody's favorite segment of the show. Wait for it. I have a cowbell here. Oh, yes. <laughs> I really do. Hold on. Where's my cowbell? All right, so I found my cowbell. It's a John Deere cowbell. Yay! So Fun Paper Friday, everybody's favorite segment. And this week, this is a paper that got a decent amount of press. Uh, I will say reading the paper itself, though, is a little bit of a slog. Oh, yeah, especially if you're not even remotely on the terms with all these biological things. <laughs> um, so yeah. it's called Effects of Caffeine on the Human Circadian Clock in Vivo and in Vitro. <laughs> Which actually sounds pretty exciting. Um, in addition to the paper, we'll also be posting, these are from um, researchers at the University of Colorado, and they have a news release about it um, that has a video with an interview with the last author, and so that is definitely worth checking out. So basically what they did here is wanted to see what drinking caffeine does to your internal clock compared to things like being exposed to dim light or bright light before bedtime. You know, we hear a lot about looking at bright blue light from your tablets is not what you want to do before you go to bed. Mm -hmm. But how does that compare to taking a double espresso? Exactly. And so they set up a bunch of different sort of scenarios, right? We had dim light... And the light was administered, we'll say, right at the subject's normal bedtimes. And the caffeine was administered three hours before bedtime. So, And the caffeine was in pills, not coffee, so that's a little sad. <laughs> yeah, you don't even get any enjoyment from it. Um, <laughs> and so they have a lot of biological markers that are basically little, they call them little clocks, and so these biological markers are what researchers can look at to sort of gauge human circadian rhythms. Well, and it, what I found interesting was the way they set up the study. Everybody took the, all the combinations of these stimulus so that each person was their own control, since each person is going to be so much different. Uh, so you would take a real caffeine pill or a placebo or be exposed to low light or bright light or different combinations. And they found some pretty significant results. Exactly. And that, that was actually, I think, one of the more brilliant parts of the study because you can talk to tons of people just out and about that say, well, I can drink coffee before I go to sleep. It doesn't bother me at all. I know we've had this conversation before. I used to be able to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yep, getting old sucks. Um, <laughs> but so this is actually really cool because you do away with that effect since everyone basically was in every part of the trial. And I don't know if I would have guessed that the bright light right at bedtime has the biggest effect on changing your circadian clock. Yeah, but just coffee and the uh, the dim light. So sitting there having your your tea or just caffeine. So sitting there having your tea and your coffee and reading a book could set you back by as much as 40 minutes still. Right. 
And so that was sort of the low end, right? And then twice as much if you have bright light right at bedtime. So if you're going to choose between your tablet and that cup of tea. Maybe go for the tea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there's a lot of medical stuff in this <laughs> paper that I know I don't quite get having to do with uh, receptors that accept caffeine. And obviously they attract uh, like melatonin, which is, you know, the release that we get the uh, hormone that's released to get us to go to sleep. And so that's how they tracked these little circadian issues and determined, you know, if the caffeine in effect affected them or if the bright lights affected the melatonin release. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's about what you would expect, but I don't know if I would have thought that of 40 minutes, if you have caffeine three hours before bed. Well, and it's interesting because this isn't just about not being able to go to sleep at night, right? There's some ways that you could use this effect to your advantage, and many of us are probably misusing caffeine. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> so on the CU's website, the news blurb about this, it talks about the upshots of this, is that you can actually use caffeine um, when you're flying west, obviously, and so it can help you overcome um, jet lag by actually medically shifting your circadian rhythm with properly timed caffeine usage. Yeah, and I will say the last sentence of the abstract uh, paints caffeine in a way that I am personally not that comfortable seeing it as a <laughs> frequent consumer, uh, as the world's <laughs> most widely consumed psychoactive drug. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, I do always say that it's uh, not addiction, it's chemical dependence. For <laughs> I'd say that was confirmed for you in this paper. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I think it was. <laughs> so that's a really interesting, uh, fun paper Friday, a little bit out of the vein of what we normally do. We normally stay away from biology since we know nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> We're alive. What's that rock? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I highly, highly encourage you to go look at the... Um, the CU web release and then the associated audio sound clip about the about the test because it's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, so be sure to check out the show notes for today's show. They'll have links to this paper and everything else we talked about, pager reports. Uh, there's also going to be some links to YouTube videos that show some of the shaking that was occurring during the earthquake that we were talking about. Lots of great content and a link to Chuck's app that he made for the iPad. So if you have an iPad, uh, go grab it and watch the world wiggle. It's a lot of fun. You, you learn a lot just by watching what's going on every single day and picking up on some of the patterns. If you have any feedback to send us, any things that you'd like us to talk about or corrections, uh, just let us know. We love hearing from you. And Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're on the web, www.don'tpanicgeocast.com. And you can find us on Twitter. Now that John's not at a nerd conference, he'll tweet less, maybe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're at Geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.